Okay, we, um, at, uh, as the session, the elders at Valley Hope, we want to, because um, the Buncombe County mask mandate was uh, dropped this week, we wanted to make clear uh, what we are doing here as we've adapted and changed for the past seeming eternity. Um, you know, we, we had, for a time, we weren't even meeting in person. We came back, we required masks for nine months, and then for like a minute, it seemed like everything was fine, and then three, three months later, they are like, you really should be all wearing masks, Omicron is coming, and so we just, since last September, strongly encouraged you to listen to, to Buncombe County and to the CDC to wear masks. Most people did, it wasn't required, but now Buncombe County has dropped that. So we're, we're trying to keep in step with how we've done the whole time, which is listen to our civil authorities and to the CDC and adapt what we say accordingly. So like for us, uh, as elders, we take a vow of subscription to the Westminster Confession, Larger and Shorter Catechisms. If you read the Westminster Larger Catechism talking about obedience to government authorities and the Fifth Commandment, it's very challenging. Uh, and that's, I took a vow to that, so I felt the weight of that. And now the question has kind of changed because the civil authorities have changed their instruction for us. So masks uh, are optional. They have been released in September with us, but we want to make clear they're also welcome. You're welcome to, to wear a mask here, and you, you don't have to, um, here or uh, in the kids' wing. Uh, th those will be optional. Um, we really encourage you to, we're, we know that you all are aware of all the things you need to be aware of. The government says you don't have to wear a mask. The CDC says, you know, you sit in a room for 90 minutes and sing. That's like the most dangerous COVID thing you could do. And you kind of know that. And we trust you to make those right judgments. Elders uh, will continue to, for now, wear masks as we serve communion because we're sort of in people's faces uh, a little bit. And all things, I just want to encourage you as Christians to think about these things as Christians, not as Americans, not as representatives of any kind of political party or anything like that. You know, as a, I've really, it's become apparent to me as this whole issue of masking and stuff has devolved into a political conversation that if you listen to people on both the left and the right, uh, everybody's sort of taken up this line of thinking. My body, my choice. This is that you apply it to different issues, but everybody's kind of doing it. And that's not the ethic for Christian community. And that doesn't mean you have to wear a mask. That's not what I'm saying. But the way that we think about this has to be distinctly Christian. And that operation, the way the Christian community operates, is really, really difficult. <laughs> I'm going to read just in a second part of Romans 15. I encourage you to read all of Romans 14 and 15. My daughter and I have been reading Romans together for the past semester and coming in and, and talking about the community standards described in Romans 14 and 15. Really difficult. And that ethic that we see out in the world, you can't tell me what to do, I'll do what I want. Um, which, again, everybody seems to be participating in in the world, is just not in the pages of Scripture. 
So that means when we come here, we're gracious with one another. We don't make assumptions about the choices that somebody's making. In fact, we are kind of obligated to assume the best about our brothers and sisters. That we don't enter into judgment about their decisions. And if we see somebody else as weaker on this issue or that issue for various reasons, we operate to protect their conscience. That's actually the ethic of Christian community. So that impinges upon all of us in wherever you think about masking or, or not masking. That affects all of us because this is the nature of, of gracious Christian community. So uh, if you find yourself struggling because you've been like, I, I want, I'm never giving up a mask. I'm very, I don't want to be around COVID. I don't want to get it. Now you're going to be about around a bunch of people who don't have masks on. And the invitation to you is not to be judgmental and angry and bitter, but to say, I will bear this burden for the sake of my community. And if you're like passionately, I will never wear a mask, don't you put that thing on my face. And you're around people who are wearing masks. You are invited to bear up a burden for the sake of your brothers and sisters. It's really challenging. And I just want to commend you, the people of this church. You've done a really, really good job. I'm so proud of you. I'm so grateful. I talked to plenty of pastors who have to, had to deal with absolute wreckage and carnage for the past two years, some of whom are flaming out. And I've just been able to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I've not had to deal with it at all. And I'm very grateful to everybody who has sacrificed really strong convictions on these issues and just said, you know what, this is not what's most important to me. Um, that's a real blessing. But let me just warn you. You are tired. Okay? You are. Whether you feel it or not, you are tired. And it's actually probably now that you need to be more attentive to your heart than ever. Because your reserves have been depleted for two years. So you may feel like things are getting easier. All of your fragility is actually now hanging out there. So you need to be really, really careful right now, especially what happens in your heart. This is really when it's getting most challenging. I just want to invite you, as we are attentive together, let's stay together. Let's worship together. Let's love and serve one another in the name of Jesus. Let me read from Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together 
you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I just want to pray for you and for us about this, okay? Father, we, uh, we have a lot that we have been carrying and dealing with, things that we've been calculating and, and, and thinking about and meditating on almost in the background of our consciousness for two years, and it's exhausting. Our reserves are depleted. Our patience is thin. And yet the demands of Christian community just still continue to hang out there. Father, we need your help. God, I thank you for the way that you have protected the health of so many people in this congregation. But more than that, I thank you for protecting the heart of this congregation. And God, I pray that you continue to do so. I pray that you'd help us to be patient and kind with one another, bearing up so that our neighbors might be welcomed as you have welcomed us. We need your help, especially now, Lord Jesus. And we're grateful that by your Holy Spirit, you are present with us to sustain us individually and corporately to the day when all might see you and praise you. God, I pray for the rest of our time this morning that you will open our hearts and our ears, that your word would be a rich feast to us, that our hearts would be invigorated. And God, we pray that we would increasingly become the people whose image conforms to yours so that all might see and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning uh, is from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 1 John chapter 4. Deuteronomy 6 starts, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then from 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
By this we know that we, are, we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in, him, he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is uh, the first week of our series in the seven deadly sins. Um, we are going to spend this, Lent is coming, Ash Wednesday is uh, March 2nd, we'll have an Ash Wednesday service. Uh, and in a lot of uh, Reformed traditions like ours, people moved away from observing things like Lent, uh, so it may be pretty foreign to you. Um, we, we use it as a helpful tool that the church ancient used as a season specifically focused on repentance and prayer, asking, of course, that we would be a repentant people all the days of the year, not just for this one season. This is not a sort of Mardi Gras mentality where, like, get your sin in before Ash Wednesday so because then you got to really deal with it. That's not what we're doing here. Uh, we're using the church calendar as a corporate discipleship practice, so uh, soon you're going to see some things that we've produced for this uh, series on the seven deadly sins and for Lent that will specifically call all of us to do uh, a few things. And then if you're struggling with some of these sins, some other practices that would be available to you to like just, hey, try this to attack this sin in your life. The, uh, the seven deadly sins are maybe something you've heard of. You're not sure what Bible passage it comes from. It doesn't. There is no passage necessarily on the seven deadly sins. Uh, it it became this sort of um, grid by which ancient Christians would start to think about all the manifestations of sin in their lives and pair them with these virtues. Because what the original writers of the seven deadly sins would talk about them as are vices, habitual giving over to these sins. So we're not just talking about I did a sin, I sinned in this way but a habitual turning of your life over to these things that need to be counteracted by a habit of virtue formation in Jesus. And so we want to make sure that you understand what it is we're talking about. You know, there's a, a way to talk about these things that's Lord, sort of laying out a, a kind of moral ladder for you uh, and trying to improve your way through this. That's not what we're, we're talking about. This is a diagnostic. These seven deadly sins are a diagnostic. And you'll find that although there's not one passage that talks about these seven vices, certainly Scripture addresses all of these things repeatedly and very clearly. 
The tradition in examining these things goes all the way back to the first few centuries of Christianity, specifically in the desert monk movement when the people in North Africa just said, like, I need to go into the desert and fight the devil, uh, which is nuts. And you can read there the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers, and it's nuts. Uh, they say things and see things that are just wild. Uh, but there's also a lot of really cool stuff that comes out of desert monasticism, serves as the basis for the monastic movement going forward. Uh, but we see even uh, in the earliest beginnings of the desert monastics, uh, guys like Evadrius start writing about these habitual sins that even these monks who are living in the desert by themselves are dealing with. I don't know about you, but I, my life isn't exactly pro approximated to a monk living in a desert by himself. I, uh, so if they're dealing with these sins, pretty sure that I am as well, and you are. We want to first take this first week. The, this is, we're doing eight weeks in this series. There's only six Sundays in Lent, so yes, it's off, but go with it. Uh, we want to take this first week to talk about not one of these seven deadly sins, but to talk about the ethic that runs underneath our approach to the seven deadly sins. And so here we have read in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 1 John chapter 4, some of what I think are some of these central modes of understanding the Christian's relationship to thinking about a life of repentance. We are entering into a season in the church calendar, specifically naming the need for repentance, both together and individually. But if you're like me, you, you're not totally sure that you have the right relationship to repentance. You're probably pretty clear that you sin. Most people feel that uh, naturally. Now, I also am pretty good at deceiving myself about the nature of my sin, but I have some sense within me at various times that something is wrong and I ought to repent. But from there, there, there is for many people, I think, a lot of mystery about what is our heart disposition towards repentance, what is God's disposition towards inviting us into repentance. And these two passages in Deuteronomy 6 and 1 John chapter 4, I think, point the way towards how we should think about this issue of how are people supposed to deal with, especially Christians, how are Christians supposed to deal with this ongoing need for repentance? In, uh, in the year 1517, hop in your time machines, go with me back to Germany, there was another monk not a desert monk, a German one, who was ordained to also be a priest, and he was an academic theologian named Martin Luther. Martin Luther had lived a life of fear because of his sin. He was tortured by constant self-examination and the reality that he could not deal with the depths of his depravity. So that even when he would come in repentance, he didn't even trust his repentance to be true and to be good. He was in terror all the time. Such that the first time that he 
was in charge of celebrating the Mass. He could barely pull himself together and get it done because he felt so unworthy to administer the sacrament. And Martin Luther had a confessor, another Augustinian monk, to whom he would confess, and this monk wonderfully would point him towards grace and talk to him about the nature of what God does for his people in Jesus Christ. And as Martin Luther listened to his confessor and put his nose in the scriptures, he looked at the practice of the church and said, there is something wrong. The church was creating a culture with the people that you have to do something about this sense of appending doom. And what you have to do is a lot of things, starting with money. The church had some fundraising needs, wanted to build a really nice church in Rome, St. Peter's Cathedral. And they were all too ready to tell people, if you would just give money, this will help sort of take care of the balance and the weight of your sin. But also this system of what's called penance. That what God needs you to do is to do something about your sin. And it took the form of prayers and actions and almsgiving so that the people could somehow feel like I'm dealing with this problem that I have. And Martin Luther had lived under the weight of this sin. And when he heard the, the whisper of the good news, that this might not be the way that God would have his people deal with sin, he said, we have to talk about this. So he wrote a list of 95 things. And he said, as the academy, we need to get, to get together. We need to talk about all 95 of each one of these things. We need to have a debate. We need to get this right. This is what we know as the 95 Theses. We're not sure where or when or how, but Luther traditionally nails these to the door of the, the place and says, we got to talk about this. They have a discussion, and it's... Not a big deal. Nothing really happens until the 95 Theses are published in German for all the common people to read. And then a match is lit and a bomb goes off. And the Protestant Reformation is off and running. I want to read to you the first four things on Martin Luther's list. Okay? When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. That is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of the flesh. The penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self or true inner repentance until our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And what Martin Luther is saying is there is not a defined moment when the people of God need to do a, a prescribed series of acts to deal with each and every sin that comes up. He says the entire life of the Christian is meant to be a response to this command from Jesus to repent. That it is not the actions of penance that are required. 
is the disposition of the heart of repentance and the working that out in your life until you see Jesus face to face. And in the commands of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the instruction of 1 John chapter 4, we see this welding together of two things that for us are often separated. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is what's known as the greatest commandment. Jesus himself identifies it as such. He's the best teacher ever. We will take his designation. This is the greatest commandment alongside the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. The command is to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. And for that to be the thing that is written before your eyes, to be written on the doorpost of your home, it's a thing you constantly talk about with your children. But tucked into Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the thing that we sort of dance around. This idea of the fear of God. For us, these are completely separate ideas. How can you love God and fear God both at the same time? And yet the scriptures will repeatedly say this thing, that the fear of the Lord is actually a good thing, that the fear of God is actually right. It's the source of wisdom and joy and happiness that those who love God are also the ones that fear him. But other times, the scriptures will make clear in both the Old and the New Testament that there's a bad kind of fear of God. That people can be afraid of God and terrified by him, which somehow distracts them from the real fear of God. John, in 1 John 4, does something similar. He says the command is to love God. And to respond to his love, to abide in his love, to give away his love so that love is active. It's not just a feeling, it's a life that flows from the inside to the outside. And it is impossible to constrain love to this internal experience and not have it affect the outward disposition of your heart and your life. So he says that if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. You don't even know the love of God. But John also brings in the question of fear. And John here says, in God there is no need to fear, for fear is about punishment. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is talking about the good fear of God. And in 1 John chapter 4, John is talking about the bad fear of God. And both of these things are necessary to see so that you would hear and obey the central command, which is to love. The whole vision of Christian formation and growth and maturity, what we call sanctification, flows from the wellspring of love. The motivation for Christian behavior towards God and towards neighbor is defined by love. But when we think about repentance, we tend to not think about love. 
What we tend to think about, this is my theory, is the kind of fear that John describes. We think of repentance. We tend to say, I've sinned against a holy God, which we have, and I'm afraid that he will give me what I deserve, so I better repent and ask for forgiveness. John, in 1 John chapter 4, explicitly says that this fear of punishment has no place in love. So what kind of fear ought to drive a life that is marked by growth and love? The language and vocabulary of the Bible will use this same word to give the visual imagery of what you are meant to experience when you rightly love and fear God. The thing that is being called to mind is a trembling in your lips and a weakness in your knees as you catch a vision of the majesty of God. And it is not terror that overwhelms you. Although the common and right experience on a glimpse of the majesty of God is to fall on your face, it is not terror like I feel when I see a spider crawl across my path. That is the fear of something wicked and evil that you should absolutely destroy with not a moment's hesitation. That is not the fear that is being described. The fear that is being described when you see God and see him clearly is that of being completely overwhelmed by the majesty of his being. And the kind of terror that is being described is not the fear that makes you want to run away, but the kind of fear that makes you want to surrender. That your knees weaken and you fall on the ground, your hands spread wide open, and you say, I don't know that I can handle what I am seeing, but this is the place that I want to be forever. And the growth in holiness, and the move of repentance in the life of the believer, if Martin Luther is right, the whole trajectory of our whole life is to be more and more and more ready and able to stand that moment when you finally see the majesty of God and you can endure just one more moment of being overwhelmed by the beauty of his holiness and love. So that repentance is not about chastising yourself into the right behavior so that you kind of crawl your way up this moral scheme to finally be a good enough person. 
A life of repentance is being under the loving hand of God who is slowly changing you and growing you and developing you and sanctifying you for the purpose not to finally be acceptable to him, but to better finally be able to actually receive even more of his acceptance and love. God is not standing on the other side of the process of repentance and saying, let me weigh out to see whether you will pass the test and be good enough. God is beckoning you on the other side of your repentance to come home and to be with him because he already has given you his acceptance as he's demonstrated to you forever, as John says, in Christ Jesus himself. So the cross is put in the ground so you and I have absolute clarity of the nature of that moment of repentance. It's that God already loves you. He already loves you. When you were an enemy, he already loved you. That's what Paul will tell you in the book of Romans. When you were an enemy opposed to him, God was for you. In the moment of your repentance, God is not shifting over to a stance of disapproval, hoping that you will win him back to your side. He is already on your side. And the thing that is in your mind pushing you to shame and to fear and to run away from him is very clearly identified by Jesus. Because to run away from God is to die. You were made for him. But there is somebody in the world that wants you to die. And Jesus says that his name is the devil. He's a father of lies who from the beginning was a murderer. So even in the moment where religious people feel that they are being holy and good, we are often finding mixed into our motivations the lie of the one who would want you to run away from God. When the true nature of repentance is an invitation of freedom to come and live with him and close to him forever. Michael Reeves, a theologian that I really enjoy, wrote a book on the fear of the Lord called Rejoice and Tremble. And he's talking about this, this misshapen, uh, twisted idea, the wrong nature of the fear of God. And he, he's, he writes, Having presented God as harsh and dreadful, this fear gives people the mindset of a reluctant slave who obeys his master, now, not out of any love, but purely from fear of the whip. Out of slavish fear, people will perform all manner of external duties in order to appease a God they secretly despise. Let me read that again. Out of slavish fear people will perform all manner of external duties in order to appease a God they secretly despise. 
And for many people, probably many people in this room, you think that God wants you to be terrified of him. That when you are caught in sin, that God is disgusted by you, that you are in mortal danger from him. Now, there is a way in which that might be true. And that is, if you look at the cross and you say, not for me. If you want to stand on your own two feet and to deal with your own sin on the basis of your own righteousness and goodness, and the holiness and goodness of God does appear to be terrifying. But the cross is the dividing mark of history. And on the other side of the cross, if you are wrestling with sin, if you are caught in the grips of darkness that shames you and drives you into isolation, you are being lied to. That thing, that voice that is telling you, I cannot even bear my soul in repentance because of what it might do to God towards me. You are hearing the voice of the serpent who is trying to drag you down to your grave. And what the scriptures are going to tell you is the truth that God is far better than you can possibly imagine. The depths of your sin are horrible, but have you seen the Lord? Have you seen the Creator God and the depths of His majestic love and holiness towards you? Your sin is precisely the reason he came after you to begin with. It is because you are trapped and crushed under the weight of sin that he ever came to die for you. He is unsurprised by the depths of your sin. And it is the very thing that drew him close to you to begin with. So a life of repentance is not a life of misery. The thing that Martin Luther is preaching, the glorious good news of that life, is not a life of self-flagellation and misery. It is a life of coming home to a God who unreservedly loves you, who has declared to you now and forever I will be your God and you will be my people. Who has looked at the fickle nature of your heart, the distraction of your mind, and has said, I will set 
all of my love on you. And when you see that God, there is nothing to do but to fear in the fear of the Lord as you are overwhelmed by the awesomeness of his love for you. You cannot handle how good God is. And the only thing that God wants to do in you in that moment of repentance is not to make you somehow palatable to him again, but to move you closer to being able to embrace just one iota more of what he has for you. So that the end of all things is that you will stand before God with unveiled face and he will have done the miracle of finishing what he started and making you fit and able to stand and gaze at the beauty of his holiness and not be distracted, not be able to look at it and say, well, I could be doing a thousand other things that might be more fun. I don't have to set my self-worth on the size of my bank account or, or the success or the number of my friends. You'll finally be able to look at God and the beauty of his holiness and say the thing that is so hard to say right now, you are the best thing I have ever seen. There is nothing that compares to you. So when God is standing before you in the scriptures and commanding you towards love, he is commanding you to move towards the thing that he made you for. So that love consumes you from the inside to the outside. It eats you up and spits out every little bit of you that is not conducive to love itself. The whole life of the believer is one of repentance. And repentance is the moving of the people of God towards the holiness and goodness of God who has come right here, right now for you. So sinner, if that is you, sinner, it is certainly me. Sinner, God has chosen to love you. And the doom in your voice, in your head, it need not be the truth. And in Christ, it certainly is not. If you are weighted down by shame and you have never received the greatness of God in Christ Jesus, today is the day. You do not need to wait anymore. There, there are no more facts that you need to collect. What you need to do is respond and give yourself over to the infinite and majestic love of God and be swept along in the tidal wave of who he is. And if you are here today, Christian, and you are trapped, you doubt yourself, the way that you keep failing is to you counter evidence that you could ever actually have been loved by God. If that's you, Christ died for you. He saw everything that's on your mind and in your heart and on your list right now. He saw it all. And he died for you one time because that's all that was necessary. Your hope has never been about you. It has always been about him. And he is better than you can imagine.
So repent. Come home. Your Father is watching for you and running to meet you as he's always done. This is the heart of repentance for those who are loved by God in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that you are so much better than we could have hoped. We hear so many lies all the time. We participate in them. We think that there are so many things better than you, worth our attention, worth our time, things that uh, will be a much better determination of, of our own worth and our own value. We give ourselves over to those things all the time. We believe those lies all the time, chief amongst them that we ought to be afraid of you. What we want when we see clearly and see best is to abide with you. Father, I pray for all of those who are here and who have never put their trust in you, who are dealing with their own moral stance before God on the basis of their own goodness. And Father, they have reason to be afraid but God, I pray that they will see you and see you clearly and realize they don't have to stand there by themselves anymore. They can instead be made right by you and with you forever. And Father, I pray for the people, your people, who are caught in the grips of sin and shame. Father, I pray that you will grab hold of them by the heart, pull into them and speak into their face the truth that you love them. Awesome and incomprehensible though that be, you love them. And God, I pray for those of us who have worn your name and limited love to an internal experience that doesn't touch an outward life. Father, I pray that we would wake up from that and that we would instead be consumed inside and out by the majesty and the magnitude of your love. Father, make us to be a people together who fear you rightly and for whom the command to love is engraved on every inch of our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness, the bigness of your generosity. We love you. Amen.